Welcome to the Geneva Peace Week podcast series, a project of the Geneva Peace Building Platform. Geneva Peace Week is a leading annual forum in the international peace building calendar. It's a week of workshops, videos and podcasts just like this one, hosted by different organizations and actors around the world. It's founded on the core belief that each and every person, actor and institution has a role to play in building peace and resolving conflict. You're listening to a podcast produced for Geneva Peace Week 2021, held from the 1st to the 5th of November, with both live workshops and pre-recorded contributions. For more content like this, join the conversation at www.genevapeaceweek.ch. Welcome back, dear listeners. My name is Lisa Binder, and this is the second episode of our podcast on climate security modeling, which has been jointly developed by PIC and UNEP. We still lack significant understanding of the complex interactions through which climate and environmental change can pose risks to peace and security. Enhancing our understanding of these interactions is crucial for the guidance of anticipatory action, and approaches from the field of climate security modeling have potential to improve our knowledge. During the last episode of this podcast, we discussed weathering risk and strata, two distinguished initiatives that make use of climate security data to overcome these challenges. And in this episode, we will be introduced to the third and last initiative called Tools for Climate Change and Fragility, Conflict and Violence that is being developed by the World Bank. Thereafter, we will be reflecting on and discussing all three initiatives including similarities and differences, as well as common challenges and how to address those in order to support policymaking and programming for peacebuilding operations. I'm now talking to Francis Aterman and Corey Patterson to learn about the World Bank's initiative Tools for Climate Change and Fragility, Conflict and Violence. Let's jump right into the discussion. So could you please briefly introduce yourselves to our listeners? Thank you, Lisa. My name is Francis Eromosa Aterman. I'm presently enrolled in the Public Policy PhD program at the University of Ibadan. My research interest is in climate change-related risk and its implications on security and peace operations in Nigeria. Hi, um, I'm Corey Patterson, and I led the, this initiative on climate change and fragility, conflict, and violence as a social development specialist. And I've recently just begun as a program manager in the Environmental Security Unit with the United Nations Environmental Program. About a decade of experience working on climate change and fragility, conflict and violence within the African region and also East Asia. Okay, so thank you both and great to have you here. So Kari, maybe to start with, can you begin by telling us about your initiative? The initiative aims to strengthen the evidence base on the relationship between environmental change and fragility, conflict, and violence in, in West Africa in order to provide governments and communities uh, with practical support to prepare and adapt to these challenges. West Africa is an incredibly dynamic region, and there's been tremendous progress across a number of fronts. The region also faces a number of really significant challenges. On the one hand, because of climate change, the region faces more frequent and severe droughts and flooding more unpredictable rainfall and temperatures that are rising up to one, one and a half times the global average in the Sahel in particular. Compounding these challenges is rising insecurity. The complexity of these challenges uh, in their interactions uh, underlines the need to empower communities and policymakers at all levels to try to coordinate solutions around a shared understanding of those challenges and the solutions. 
Uh, and in that context, the narrow goal of the first analytical step to this initiative, which also includes operational dimensions as well, is to inform a range of different projects supported by the World Bank in West Africa, um, including respective stakeholders there, but also to help inform and motivate public discussion. So using available data on violent and nonviolent conflict together with remote sensing data, the approach combines quantitative and machine learning techniques to generate clusters of communities across the region with similar types of vulnerability to climate security factors. And the machine learning analysis cluster settlements by their similarity across three dimensions of vulnerability, so exposure, sensitivity, and the adaptive capacity. So mapping these clusters helps identify areas facing high overall vulnerability um, and those with shared sort of vulnerability profiles to, for example, aid resource allocation and information sharing respectively between those areas. The analysis um, also includes a modeling of the relationship between conflict outcomes and these environmental factors. And we can see through that where the model is successful at predicting conflict and areas where it's not successful. And then we're commissioning comparative case studies to understand how these factors are related and how under certain conditions they lead to negative security outcomes. And with these insights, we can better understand, hopefully, the, the complex relationship between climate change and fragility, conflict, and violence and build an operational toolbox in particular to support participatory local planning and to facilitate regional solutions. Okay, thanks, Corey, for, for giving such a comprehensive overview over um, the project you're involved in, including the contextual situation, um, the aims and goals, and also the, the comprehensive methodology you just pointed out to. So, Francis, how are you involved in this initiative? I mean, you already mentioned um, your background, but which perspective do you bring in uh, regarding this project? Our research on climate change and farmer elders' conflicts in Nigeria was among the case study that was selected for the World Bank study on climate change and fragility, conflict and violence in West Africa. In our study, we did not just look at climate change as a sole promoter of fragility, conflict and violence. We illustrated the complexity of interconnected factors such as climate change, governance deficits, migration, displacement, population growth, operating in tandem to ferment fragility and violent conflicts in Nigeria. Okay, thanks. So um, based on the case study you conducted as part of the World Bank Climate Security Risk Assessment, what are the major climate security risks that Nigeria is currently facing? And maybe also more specifically in relation to the analysis of the farmer herder conflicts you were looking at, How would you describe the relationship between farmers and herders in Nigeria um, recently and how is it changing? And also what role does climate change play therein? Drought, flooding, desertification and heat waves, which are promoted by variability in rainfall and rising temperature, are the major climate security risks that Nigeria is currently facing. Nigeria, especially along the desertification frontline states, is losing about 0.6 kilometers of land to desertification yearly. And this is putting pressure on the livelihood of Nigerians. Before now, the relationship between farmers and elders in Nigeria used to be very cordial. But in recent times, there is a strain in this relationship due to constant conflicts between farmers and elders over available land and water resources. And also, as a result of mistrust between these two demographic groups, Also, recently we've witnessed permanent migration of elders down south from the northern part of Nigeria. And this has increased 
in the past few years due to climate change induced droughts and desertification. This migration down south is bringing about competition over the available land and water resources between farmers and elders, thereby promoting violent conflicts. Thanks, Francis. Um, you just explained how climate change impacts are increasing pressures on natural resources, causing um, herders to migrate southwards, where then also competition over land and water resources, of course, increases, um, leading to violent conflicts. So within this context, you just explained what information would you say are needed to support peacebuilding efforts in Nigeria and what are the major gaps that need to be addressed um, to prevent climate-induced resource scarcities from turning into violent conflict between farmers and herders? Yeah, thank you, Lisa, once again. In order to effectively support peacebuilding efforts among farmers and herders, there is need to have information on the identity of elders within the territorial boundary of Nigeria. Elders that we have in Nigeria, they are with no identity. We don't know where they are migrating from. So getting this information will help in developing a better framework to foster peaceful coexistence between farmers and elders in Nigeria. And also from our research, we have already identified sufficient information on several factors or indicators such as climate change, population growth, identity crisis, and governance deficits that are responsible for farmer elders conflicts. We discovered that governance deficits is the overriding factor because with good governance, the effect of these other factors that we mentioned can be mitigated. So we can address other problems if we have good governance. So from our study, the major gap that we identify has to do with deficits in bottom-up approach to addressing the problem of climate change induced farmer elders conflicts. And this is what our study is proposing because most of the framework developed to address the problem has always been a top-bottom approach that is from the government down to the people. And in this part of the world, it does not get to the people because local government is not functioning presently in Nigeria. So we see that there is deficiency of information on how local or community-based institutions can be an effective institution in addressing the problem associated with climate change in due summer elders conflict in Nigeria. So we are suggesting that a bottom-up approach should be better enhanced to address this problem. So if we can get more information on how to build a better framework that would be from the bottom up, that is what we are suggesting. So Corey, um, Francis just particularly pointed out to the need for information relating to the identity of herders and their changing living conditions in relation to climate change impacts And we already talked about migration in this context. Um, and he also mentioned governance deficits and referred to gaps in knowledge on how to strengthen these capacities or the capacities of local and community-based institutions to enhance bottom-up approaches. So this is probably quite a difficult question to answer, but is your initiative somehow trying to address these gaps? Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks, Lisa and Francis. As for these data gaps that Francis was mentioning, I think the initiative can help by bringing a degree of clarity around some of the geographic issues that Francis was saying, in particular around the zones of interactions between farmers and herders and how those zones might be changing geographically because of climate change by showing where these areas of joint risks to climate and conflict outcomes are highest 
and where we think you know it may go in the future, the analysis can help bring a fairly granular mapping and visibility of all of that. And I think that that can help inform both at the local level, like Francis was saying, community dialogue and planning. And because this initiative is affiliated with several regional community-driven development projects supported by the World Bank, there is an excellent opportunity to inform local level participatory planning. Also, in the context of regional projects supported by the World Bank around pastoralism, there are already cross-border transhumans consultation platforms which have been set up. And I think there's an opportunity to inform the mapping under this initiative to help inform and improve the monitoring uh, of those transhumanist corridors that Francis was also uh, referring to. And then finally, I think in relation to his point about governance, by showing what I anticipate to be the important role that these indicators play within our own analysis, by showing that those factors are, are very important in areas where we do see high conflict events, that can help inform an evidence-based discussion with national governments about the need to make investments in these areas which may be marginal or peripheral, such as in the border. That means you're really, within your initiative, trying to map those zones of interaction and potential conflicts between farmers and herders um, to inform both local and regional level governance, and thereby trying to, to address some of the gaps that Francis identified. So, Francis, in, in the Nigerian context, what are um, possibly good indicators that need to be considered along with um, other climate change indicators in order to effectively understand the complexity of uh, those farmer-herder conflicts you just explained in Nigeria? Yeah, the issue of farmer-herder conflicts in Nigeria is a very complex situation that you don't approach from one lens. So along with climate change, population growth, identity crisis, as well as governance deficits are the other indicators that can be considered in order to effectively understand the complexity of farmer elders' conflicts in Nigeria. Okay, thanks, Francis. Corey, which indicators do you choose for your assessment? And are those indicators also in line with what Francis just mentioned? I mean, he, he talked about indicators on identity and governance deficits that have to be looked into when talking about or when analyzing farmer herder conflict. So the, the indicators for the, the base model uh, come from the IPCC's framework for vulnerability, which has three parts, exposure, sensitivity, and adaptive capacity. So exposure to climate and, and conflict risks uh, include travel time to nearest conflict, sensitivity, travel time to nearest water source, or adaptive capacity could be travel time to nearest hospital. So this is just the, the geospatial distance uh, indicators. One of the limitations that informs the selection of indicators is that they have the same temporal and spatial coverage. Of course, uh, I think political science uh, researchers in the conflict field would certainly say you know, that, that identity is key. Uh, and, and I think that this fits exactly with what Francis is saying about the role of identity. One of the variations on the model that, that we are uh, experimenting with is trying to use geocoded data of social identities uh, as a factor as well. And then some of the analysis that we're looking at. So I definitely including some of those identity-based factors as well. Um, we already talked about the major impacts of climate change on the conflict situation in Nigeria and also about needs to address those impacts. However, those efforts to reduce climate-related security impacts must also be supported politically. And you already mentioned um, some issues when it comes to political implementation. 
Um, which role do climate-related security risks play on the political agenda in Nigeria? And what do you think would be needed to ensure that the role of climate change impacts on security risks is not neglected in, in policy responses for peacebuilding efforts? Nigeria remains committed to several environmental treaties and agreements, but little has been done in terms of implementation. For example, the National Livestock Transformation Plan, developed to put an end to farmer headers conflict, was developed without factoring climate change impact into the plan. So they just think of addressing the problem, but they don't look at the major factor, what is causing this problem. Climate change is a major factor because without climate change, headers will not be moving. Before, they used to move during the dry season, they come down south. At the commencement of raining season, they move back north. But now they are not moving again. They are staying down south. And this has to do with climate change. The National Livestock Transformation Plan is the most important strategy that the government is trying to use to address this issue of farmer headers conflict. But they are still not putting the issue of climate change into consideration. So therefore, in order to ensure that the role of climate change impact on security risk is not neglected in policy response for peace building efforts, there is a need to build the capacity of a local institution to effectively respond to climate-related risk. We just heard that the National Livestock Transformation Plan, which, as Francis told us, is the most important framework when addressing farmer herder conflicts in Nigeria, does not consider climate change impacts, though these are the major conditional factors behind, as we heard. Francis pointed out to the need for capacity building of local institutions to, to address this issue. Um, and therefore, my question would be in terms of the policy context that Francis just described, who is your intended audience and how do you plan to communicate the findings? So across the, the countries that are, that are involved in, in the analysis, um, the principal partner is national governments, and they are critical, but they're not the only actor. Communities themselves are at the front lines, are facing these things most critically, and, and are often not only the ones with the best knowledge of the risks that they face, um, but also are a wealth of knowledge of innovative solutions to these different kinds of challenges, both from drawing on traditional expertise and experiences, as well as there's a much better chance that you're going to come up with a, a range of experimentation and some really innovative solutions. So there, what, what I'm trying to say is that I think rather than have a bilateral discussion between international organizations and national governments, there's a range of different stakeholders, including also civil society, including local government, including regional organizations that need to be a part of that conversation. Um, by trying to come up with both a, an analysis that can work at the scale of the entire West African region and also offer us insights that go all the way down to a quite local level, one objective is to create a platform for evidence-based discussion at all of those different levels. One of the things the World Bank is trying to do is design mobile-based tools to push out information about medium-term risks from climate-related impacts to communities as they go through a local planning process to provide them with information on, on medium-term climate trajectories and potential impacts to mainstream climate trajectories into that local development planning that Francis was referring to. Um, as well as creating a two-way channel of communication so communities themselves can report on climate impacts and, and, and help decision makers uh, who are working at the national level and the capital better understand the local condition through you know, more easily accessible digital formats so they don't always have to be driving out there to see these things.
So you're really trying to enhance the discussion and exchange of information between different stakeholders, ranging from local to regional scale by creating digital platforms. Yes, and, and if I can just add one final note, I think that with climate change and with longer term environmental change, I guess Francis made reference to, there is a need to also think about some medium term issues as we try to make investments in prevention um, to avoid conflict in the short term, to still be thinking about that medium term. Otherwise, we find ourselves, as we often do in these, in these areas, and, and simply sort of repeating uh, the same sort of cycle of humanitarian support and conflict over many, many years. Thanks, Corey, for um, your final note, emphasizing the need to consider multiple timeframes when aiming at the prevention of climate-related security outcomes or conflicts. Um, that being said, I would like to thank both of you for sharing your valuable insights on the climate security situation in Nigeria and the World Bank's initiative to assess and address such climate-related security risks. In this last part of our podcast, we are going to summarize and discuss the three initiatives which have been presented. In the last episode, we talked about the Weathering Risk Initiative from PIC and Adelphi, in which a mixed method approach, including elements from machine learning, qualitative case studies and scenario analysis, is being applied to assess and give guidance on current and future climate security risks. We also discussed UNEP's Strata initiative, which currently develops a web-based mapper to identify hotspots in which environmental and climate stressors are converging with structural socioeconomic risks that might threaten human security. And in this episode, we already talked about the World Bank's project, Tools for Climate Change, Fragility, Conflict and Violence, in which conflict vulnerability profiles for West Africa are being developed to create a set of tools to better understand and address the relationship between climate change and hotspots of fragility, conflict and violence. All three projects aim to identify current and future risks of environmental and climatic impacts on peace and security, and all of them seek to provide entry points for early action to promote sustainable peace. But the approaches differ in terms of their methodology, tools, and the guidance they provide for anticipatory action. We would now like to reflect on and discuss some major commonalities, differences, and challenges. Barbara Sidova from PIC, Marie Skellens from UNEP, and Corey Patterson, who led the World Bank project, already presented their initiatives and are joining me again now. So welcome back, everyone. In our former sessions, we already talked about data and indicators that are crucial for the assessment of such climate-related security risks. And though the availability of data is growing rapidly, data availability can be quite restricted. As we heard, this is particularly true for socioeconomic data on a more granular scale. So how do you deal with this challenge? This is really one of the bigger challenges and we're constantly on the lookout for potential partners and developers of such like socioeconomic granular uh, geospatial data. And we prefer it to be, of course, global and high resolution and high qualities. But often that's only available on a very local basis or national basis, and it's not extendable to, to a global reach for, for a more global or regional platforms. Within the Weathering Risk Initiative, our multi-method approach, which also covers perspectives from the field, proves to be very useful in addressing existing data gaps. But the more comprehensive collection of such information is beyond the scope of this project. When it comes to our quantitative research activities, we often have to work with what is available. 
To this end, and similar to what Marie said, we are continuously researching new data sets and methodologies that could help us to address these gaps. Increasingly, we draw on novel sources such as information from social media, for example, Twitter. In relation to conflict data. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Corey, do you also want to add something? Yes, you know, remote sensors provide a huge amount of high quality data all over the world. And it's really a wealth of data about Earth systems. And there's a huge amount of data, including social media data um, that was just mentioned. But as you know, you point out, the data on the socioeconomic side is still often very patchy. Um, if you try to rely on census data, especially in conflict-affected countries, this is often very difficult because, you know, maybe there's been 30 years since the last census was taken. So in addition to, to trying to support uh, new data, uh, as Mary was saying, there's a few ways that we try to navigate this building on methods or even data used by other social science fields like political science. Uh, and one is using remote sensing data as a proxy. So for example, nighttime luminosity for local economic activity, and then also trying to use some statistical methods that help combine national level data, such as, for example, Afrobarometer data with census information to try to get subnational insights that are locally representative. Moving on um, from the input data that are necessary to conduct such um, climate security risk assessments towards challenges in accessing yeah, risks such as interlinked transboundary and cascading efforts. We know that um, climate change effects can impact regional or even global processes such as trade or migration, which then exacerbate existing conflicts and can also create new conflicts. And we have already talked about this in preceding conversations. I would still like to ask again how important you think it is to include such risks in the assessments and what might be first steps to do so. Accounting for the higher order effect on climate change is absolutely crucial to comprehensively assess all associated threats to peace and security. Weathering risk aims to address these transmitted and cascading risks. At PIC, we have modelers who analyze how such risks, including food price level, migration and displacement, might change in the future under different socioeconomic and climatic scenarios. We consider this information in our full site analysis and scenario planning to develop a range of plausible futures based on which we design our recommendations for action. So yes, we are trying to be as comprehensive as possible. Yeah, so certainly, I mean, looking at the interlinked effects for, for all of the, the reasons that Babora just mentioned, it's extremely important um, because we know that the impacts of climate change are far reaching and, and we're discovering that they're even more far reaching than when we might have imagined. I think the challenge is really trying to identify and demonstrate the conditions under which you know, the, the security impacts of, of climate change manifest and, and you know, some of the causal pathways by which that happens. Um, and within the World Bank project, we're trying to contribute to both of those tasks. Um, first, by creating clusters of settlements with similar types of vulnerability, so we can create easy to understand maps which show which kind of risk factors overlap. And then second, by testing different risk factors against past conflict events. And then finally, we're trying to leverage case studies and, and qualitative information to try to unpack the, the how of how these factors are linked under certain conditions. So within the context of the West African region, we're trying to contribute some answers because I think you know, there's an increasing consensus that it is indeed extremely important to be uh, looking at these things. So you're basically trying to analyze and forecast such cascading risks by making use of machine learning approaches. 
but then also adding uh, qualitative approaches to create full and integrated understanding of the interactions and the security impacts. Yes, exactly. Because I think that, you know, there's a need to recognize the inherent limitations of both kinds of methodologies, quantitative and qualitative and other. Uh, and then filling those blind spots by combining them is what we're trying to do with this project. Yeah. Um, so I would really like to second both Barbara and Corey's points. We also in the Strata project try to combine like what are our data outputs and our data insights and then where where does this stop? What are the limits and what what is then missing? What should you still find qualitative information on local and contextual information? And how does that how does that help you interpret the um, quantitative data? But at the same time, we also have the feeling within the Strata project that we can go a couple of steps further, at least in these transboundary and cascading effects. And so we are researching how we can actually try to visualize these transboundary impacts and transboundary risks in a first step, mainly connected to the landscape and to the uh, environmental and climate issues, because that's a bit more easily captured in geospatial data platforms. But then later on, maybe if we have a quite generalized approach for that, we can also bring that over to more socioeconomic processes like food trade or like migratory patterns. But so we are still researching how we could visualize that also in a quantitative platform while at the same time clearly communicating to your end users that the quantitative side is limited and that there are qualitative approaches that needed to be added on to this to create a full integrated understanding of the situation. We now already touched upon the following question, which relates to merging those quantitative approaches with context-specific situations from the ground. So my question would be, what are the major challenges in bringing qualitative and quantitative approaches together also in regard to maybe more practical challenges in implementation and communication of the assessment. Weathering risk is conducted by partners with very different background. Climate researchers with a very profound understanding of the long-term large-scale climate change impacts on the one hand, and social scientists and conflict analysts who understand local socioeconomic and political realities on the ground on the other hand. Bringing these two communities together is extremely promising for a comprehensive analysis of climate-related security risks, but indeed carries numerous challenges. One crucial challenge is to bring everyone who is involved to the common denominator. An example of a challenge we needed to solve was how to provide accessible and useful information on climate impacts for local conflict analysis. The most useful proved to be the production of climate risk profiles for different countries, which we produced together with the uh, Agrica project at BIC. An example of yet another important challenge is the integration of local knowledge when designing the measures to improve early action. For the Strata project, the challenges mainly lie in, in communicating how to use the quantitative tool and, and the data-driven insights you get from it. Because, of course, you can have a very targeted audience where you will be explaining how to use a tool and what it should be used for, what it cannot be used for, what it, what it doesn't do. But the main goal is to provide it as an easy, accessible and an open source tool, so easily available to a wide audience. So for us, the, the communication is, is really an issue. So we need to create really clear guidance tool or very clear language within the tool itself to show like the quantitative data is able to say this far. But if you want to have a deeper understanding, you also need to think about 
these types of questions that we cannot answer with the quantitative data and these kind of uh, methods might help you with that. Um, I think one of the, the real challenges for these kind of projects, which are also sort of monitoring projects and they're intended to inform decision-making um, and discussion among stakeholders in a, in a dynamic way. The question really comes from how do you combine those different kind of data sources in a dynamic way on an ongoing basis? So for example, in the World Bank project, we're using case studies as, as our qualitative research. But over the long term, we're also trying to think about um, how can we create ways of local reporting on climate events? How can we create ways where people are, are actively um, populating this with data? Um, because, you know, doing case studies on an ongoing basis over, say, 10 years is perhaps maybe not the best way that we want to do this because it's sort of very labor intensive. I would like to address one more question to follow up on something we touched upon during the Strata session. Marie, you pointed out the need for ethical guidance concerning the development and also the use of climate security data and tools. So could you please give an example that illustrates this need? Yes, for example, um, critical infrastructure like electricity or water access points, schools or hospitals. That might be information that we are providing within the Strata platform because that's very important to know and to prioritize those areas in environmental security programming or policy decisions. But that kind of information could at the same time also be used for targeting by violent groups. Uh, another example is the fact that we weigh, for example, our climate and environmental and conflict hotspots based on the amount of people that we think live in a certain area. So if a certain area, if there's a similar kind of environmental issue happening in an area where more people live, that means we will give a higher priority, make it a more clearly identified hotspot. But if our data on population density is incorrect or biased, for example, based on nightlight emissions, but then the rural areas where they don't have electricity access will not be reflected there. We might be excluding certain people from our analysis and thus from our prioritization and thus from our recommendations for programming and policy. So there's quite a lot of different types of examples to give on, on why ethical guidance is necessary. Yeah, so these examples you're giving are basically relating to questions such as um, whom are we putting at risk by sharing certain data or also who do we leave behind by, for example, only considering certain areas or maybe also um, relating to the provision of tools that are only accessible online? Um, I mean, I just wanted to add on to Mary's point. I also think that collecting data, it should be informed by ethical guidelines as well, as it is in social science generally. I think one of the things that I've been challenged by uh, in, in the last several years is also on the quantitative side. We know that social identities usually play an important role in understanding conflict. And as we were just discussing, in many cases, this data is incomplete or intentionally not collected or inaccurate. So for example, the Rohingya uh, are, are not a group of people uh, that we have any firm numbers on. However, trying to fill that gap by counting people according to our own identifiers can have the same result as in qualitative research if you go and speak to somebody and you know, mark them as, as somebody who is collaborating with someone from the outside. So I think that those are all real considerations also for collecting data as well. And this makes it even more challenging to find appropriate socioeconomic data. So moving on, I would like to come to the point that all initiatives have the same goals, namely informing policymaking and programming for peacebuilding operations in the end. But the approaches differ, for instance, in terms of the chosen risk assessment methodologies or the sets of data and indicators that are being used. 
or the choice of time and regional scales. So how can you ensure that those projects in the end complement each other? And what will you do about any contradictory evidence that may arise? It is extremely important to have several initiatives which pursue the same goal. This enables verifying the evidence and digging deeper into conflicting findings. The more so when such a complex and sensitive issue as climate change impacts on conflicts is at stake. For this, ongoing exchange about results is essential to recognize convergence or divergence in findings early on. I completely agree with Barbora, of course. So I think there are so many approaches out there and there are a lot of opportunities also. So we just need to take those to, to learn from each other and really uh, have this discussion ongoing with all the people who are doing these climate security assessments. At the moment, there's still a lot to learn. There's still a lot of challenges. So the more people that are working on this, the better. And at the same time, there is a lot of work being done on understanding these, these complex interlinkages between environmental issues and, and the human security impacts of that. But at the same time, there is also really a large need from that and more and more coming. Like there's a big demand from international organizations and from NGOs on doing these kind of assessments and then how are they relevant for their programs and then their implementation on the ground and uh, not one organization will be able to fulfill all those demands so we really need just all hands on deck and we really um, need to try out all these different approaches uh, and, and keep in discussion like my colleague said. You all just raised the enhanced need for collaboration between different groups of stakeholders to raise awareness over the multiple climate security risks, but then also on the need for validation and reproduction of the approaches and their results. So maybe as a last question to uh, our listeners, what would be the last message you would like to convey to them? But collaboration and, and coordination is key, I think, as um, all of these efforts start happening, because I think fragmentation is also a real risk. In addition to our three projects, there are also several ongoing initiatives to improve early warning of climate-related security risks. So from my side, I would like to conclude by encouraging representatives of similar projects to get in touch. We should build a critical mass to share our knowledge, experience, and evidence to improve the learning experience of this complex and highly sensitive topic. I completely agree with Barbora. I just want to add a note that recently the Environmental Peace Building Association started an interest group on big data. And I think that might be, for example, one of the platforms where such discussions can take place, but definitely also at conferences like the Geneva Peace Week now. Okay, I think there's nothing much left to say for me except also to thank you for participating in this discussion round. Thank you and, and thanks to our listeners. Dear listeners, if you have any questions or feedback regarding the three approaches that we have discussed in this podcast, please do get in touch with us. You will find our contact details at the website of the Geneva Peace Week. So thanks for listening in and we are looking forward to hear from you. Thanks for joining us for this installment of the Geneva Peace Week podcast series. Don't forget to subscribe, rate the podcast, and leave a review about something you learned. You can also visit our website to continue the conversation with the makers of this episode. Or join us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Geneva Peace Week. Above all, thank you for being here, and we hope you'll join us again for another episode.